And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Hey there, welcome to the very first edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, a brand new podcast uh, here on the Blaze Radio Network. I am your foolish host, Cam Edwards. Uh, I imagine many of you may have followed me over from my uh, day job at NRA News, where I'm the host of Cam and Company. And if so, thank you very much for doing so. I hope that uh, that you enjoy even more, although at some point it just gets to be too much, doesn't it? I mean, already we're doing four hours a day, three hours uh, online at NRANews.com and on uh, Sirius XM Satellite Radio at uh, midnight Eastern on Patriot 125. And then we do the one-hour TV show on Sportsman Channel as well. So why on earth am I doing this? <sighs> All right, so here's what happened. Uh, back in the fall, Glenn Beck had a, uh, a charity event for Mercury One, the God, Guns, and Giving event. And we went down to cover it for NRA News. And it was amazing. It was such an incredible weekend. So it was a weekend of shooting, and Glenn opened up the Miracles and Massacres Museum. And I, I'm such a history uh, nut. It doesn't, aficionado doesn't really work. Uh, amateur, amateur scholar, maybe. Lover? I'm a history lover. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an appreciator of history. I like to know where we came from. I like to know our shared stories and I actually got a chance to listen to Glenn uh, lead a tour around the museum. It was one of the coolest experiences uh, that I've had as a broadcaster. And then I, I had a chance to interview Glenn as well. And so we uh, talked a little bit about uh, the idea of doing something for The Blaze. When I talked with uh, Dom Theodore, the idea was, all right, you're already doing you know, a lot of stuff with the Second Amendment. What, what about going behind the microphone, so to speak? Because um, I kind of haven't, I, I hope it's an interesting story anyway. It's interesting to me, uh, but, you know, our own lives should be endlessly fascinating, right? Although, perhaps not to the point of narcissism. Anyway, I digress. Um, back at the end of 2012, my wife and I did uh, something that I'm sure most of our friends thought were crazy, although uh, thankfully only a couple of us, a couple of them told us. Uh, we moved from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. to a 40-acre farm uh, right outside of Farmville, Virginia. And yes, Farmville is a real place. It's not just a uh, Facebook app. In fact, I don't even play the Facebook app, but that's because I'm sort of living it, I suppose. Uh, anyway, my wife and I both grew up in uh, suburbs, different suburbs. She grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, no experience. <laughs> on the farm. It's sort of Green Acres, uh, updated to the 21st century, I suppose. And uh, along with four of our five kids, uh, our oldest daughter is uh, off on her own, um, we moved and uh, started raising chickens. And then the, uh, the pigs came and then my wife uh, decided that she wanted to uh, uh, raised dairy goats, and so the 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 goats slowly started accumulating uh, on the farm, and then the uh, the, the garden uh, began. We have plans to uh, get into a farmer's market, and so we've been experimenting with different types of tomatoes over the past couple of years. This is the first year that we're kind of 
planning on going the whole hog, so to speak. Uh, actually, we can't go whole hog at the farmer's market because they uh, government regulations don't allow it. We, we have to take our meat up to a processor in Harrisonburg, and that's a haul for uh, one or two pigs. So we raised our own pork to eat for ourselves and when friends come over. And it is the, uh, oh, it is the tastiest thing in the world, honestly. Uh, anyway, so we'll be talking a lot about just kind of what's going on uh, on the farm. We, uh, we've got a lot actually planned for this year. Uh, we're in the process of assembling a greenhouse over the next couple of weeks, which is really exciting because last spring, uh, the first year that we moved in, we got chickens. And so we spent about six weeks with uh, chickens living in our house, baby chicks, uh, slowly turning into not baby chicks, uh, 31 of them living in our house. And I, I don't want to go through that ever again. But last year, it was sort of the uh, the vegetarian version of that on, on in front of every window, in front of every possible transparent surface that could receive light. We had seedlings uh, and we had shelves that we had put up uh, for, again, a period of a couple of months before we could uh, uh, put them uh, out in the ground without the, you know, the worry of frost. So uh, this is our big project uh, in the garden this year is to have a greenhouse so that we uh, don't have to have our house as a greenhouse. Uh, we also have plans to uh, not, uh, not, not build a shooting range, uh, so to speak, but we, we have an area that's... Uh, uh, safe to shoot and it's secluded and uh, it's just kind of overgrown and out of control and we're uh, we're gonna get it in shape so that we can uh, start plinking down there on a more regular basis we go down now and it's nice but it could be so much better than what it is and that's one of the reasons why we moved uh, to the farm one of the many many reasons uh, if you ask me on a, a daily basis I could probably give you another reason uh, why we decided to do this, but but that was certainly one of the benefits uh, was the opportunity to actually just you know again wander out your back door and 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 go to a place where you can go plinking with your kids uh, or your wife and uh, you can have friends there and you can teach people how to shoot. We have uh, friends right now who live about an hour from us and they're amazing because they're always opening up their range to folks. Uh, to, to to go shoot for the first time and it's um they're, they're they're fantastic people and they're great ambassadors for the second amendment and so i i want to be able to do that as well uh at my place so that's one of my plans for the year that i hope we'll be talking about and of course you know i'm really hoping that um i can get help from you uh, with uh, advice and tips. So we'll give out the email address before the end of the show, and feel free to, to write in with, uh, I suppose, uh, even constructive criticism, but uh, uh, helpful advice is, is always appreciated. Um, I think on this program as well, you know, i, I got to be honest with you, I'm still sort of f- uh, feeling my way out here. This is very new to me after doing the, the same show for 10 years. Uh, to do a show that is... Again, sort of d- designed to talk about not something that I, I know a lot of things about, but um, a lot of things that I don't is is a very unusual experience. So uh, I imagine the show will sort of uh, change and morph as time goes on. But uh, right now, I, I again, I sort of see this as uh, an opportunity to uh, 
share what uh, what I see and what I've learned from from moving here to Farmville. And you know, the number one question again people ask is, well, the number one question people ask is, why do you wear baseball hats all the time? And maybe I'll get into that at some point. But uh, the number one question that people ask when when they find out where I live is, is why did you do it? And as I said, there are, I don't know how many reasons uh, why. I, I suppose the simple answer is it just was the right thing to do. It felt right. Um, we decided in the summer of 2012 that we were going to uh, start looking for a place. And we, when we moved, okay, we've got to go back a little bit. Uh, when we moved to Northern Virginia in 2004, it was not at the height of the housing bubble, but it was certainly at the beginning of the housing bubble. So we had the wise and prudent idea that, okay, we will rent uh, in our neighborhood for a year. We'll see if we like the place. If we like the place, then we'll buy a house in our neighborhood, which was, again, a very wise and prudent thing to do, except that a year later we did like the neighborhood that we lived in, uh, but we could no longer afford to buy. Now, the the nice thing was we had a great landlord. Um, he was very reasonable with rent, and we stayed there for eight years, and it was great. But at some point, uh, my wife and I kept thinking, oh, we're wasting equity, right? We, we don't want to be here forever, uh, and we would like to have a, a place of our own. So periodically, uh, throughout that eight-year period, we would, we would kind of get hit with this urge and would start looking around, and we would inevitably get depressed because we didn't like what we would find. So this third time around... We said, all right, we, you know, we're getting ready to renew our lease. Do we really want to renew our lease? Do we really want to go out and look again and be depressed at, at, at not finding anything that we want? And uh, I, I can't remember who it was who said it, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that it was me. Just for the sake of the story, you understand. Um, so I, 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 I said, or my, maybe my wife said, um, why don't we just do something crazy? We've always talked about one day. Wouldn't it be awesome to own a farm? Well, why don't we just make that one day now? And the reason why I say I, it was me who came up with this idea is because in my in my mind, I see her staring uh, sort of incredulous at me like, uh, like I, I've just announced that I'm Napoleon uh, and she's Josephine. And uh, she, she's, eventually we had the conversation, and I, I explained to her my, my rationale for this, that at the time, uh, my show was on 9 to midnight. I went to work usually about a half hour before the kids got home from school. Occasionally I could push it, uh, but I would often then get stuck in traffic, and I would occasionally be late for interviews that I uh, had to pre-tape before the show. So, you know, honestly, um, I, I rarely saw my kids during the week unless it was in the morning uh, or maybe once uh, during the week if I could make it home. 
it was really only on the weekends that uh, I was able to spend any significant time with my my family. And and with that being the case, then okay, what if we look outside of DC and it's in crazy inflated uh, real estate bubble? What if we? Is it possible? And I didn't. We didn't know the answer, but you know, is it possible for us to find a place that's within? not a daily commutable distance, but three to four hours drive that, you know, might be actually affordable for, uh, uh, to, to, to make it work. So we, um, we started looking and it was a four month long process, uh, in which we drove, I don't know how many thousands of miles, uh, over, multiple weekends to look at uh, 16 different farms in uh, three different states. Actually, no, I take that back. It was uh, 17 farms in three different states. Uh, The 16th house that we looked at was actually the house that we, uh, that we bought. It was the house that was home really from the, um, even before the moment that we saw it, but certainly the moment that uh, we saw it, my wife let out a, a squee and she said, oh, I want this one. I want. And I said, oh, no, no, you know, because we're with the realtor. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to you have to play it cool, please. Um, and there was no playing it cool for my wife. It's a uh, it's exactly what she wanted. It's a rambly old farmhouse. Um earliest parts of it go back to somewhere between 1775 and 1781. We're not really sure. Uh, there's a, a mantle in the house that, uh, according to the family history, was uh, carved by Native Americans who were still living in the area at the time. Although I have to say I don't know how likely that actually uh, is. Um, parts of the house were added on in the eighteen. Uh, 18- 30s and the 1880s and it's you know it's it's kind of settled in some places kind of funny and uh our dining room has a sort of odd uh, slant to the floor uh but it's okay we we manage <laughs> it's it uh, the back stairs have this sort of crazy carnival tilt to it that can throw you off the first uh, dozen times or so you walk up the stairs but it's okay it's home um and it was home to uh, one family for uh, generations and generations, and then it was home to a uh, another a family with small kids, and now it's home to another family with kids. And so it's been a, a home to families um, since the beginning, really, of our of our nation's history. And I'm I'm fascinated again by the idea that you can sort of trace our nation's history through these forty acres. But, you know, I might be getting a little ahead of myself here. It, it strikes me that there are uh, a number of stories that are, uh, I, I guess, yeah, foolish in nature about the uh, process of buying the farm that you might be interested in. So we'll talk about that when we come back. But before we go to break, uh, let me just first say thank you again to uh, everybody at The Blaze for giving me this opportunity, as well as uh, thank you to the folks at NRA News for um, – uh, believing, uh, like I do, that that it's important that we have these voices from outside of the Times Square media, from uh, outside of the Beltway, from outside of Hollywood, 
and for uh, allowing me to help present some of those voices. It is a um, it's a job that I take very seriously, and I am uh, I'm, I'm very blessed uh, to be able to do what I do. So thank you to everybody who makes that possible. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about the farms that got away. It's the very first edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm Cam Edwards. We were talking before the break about the uh, the quest for the farm. And I, I don't know how many uh, folks listening to this may have this same dream, the same idea. But um, I, I, I can't counsel you actually against doing what I did because ultimately I'm happy with the results. But it was a long drawn out arduous process it was a roller coaster of emotions uh for for many many months and it was many thousands of miles on the car so if you can do it better than i did uh, good on you uh here's what happened to me basically uh, it started with a website uh who knows maybe a future sponsor here on uh, 40 acres and a fool called landandfarm.com and it was uh, a friend of mine told me about it. He had bought some property to hunt on. And I start looking, because it's land and farm, I start looking at the farms and start coming up with these pretty interesting results. So my wife and I uh, used that website as our jumping off point. Um, and from there, uh, the first farm we looked at actually was in North Carolina. And it was, uh, it was, it was cheap. It was very affordable. It was about four hours away, though, which was uh, a drawback. And on the we got and we we uh, got eaten alive by chiggers while we were down there, which I think kind of uh, cast a, a negative uh, pall uh, over that 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 whole um, farmstead. So we we ended up passing on that. Uh, we started looking in the uh, Shenandoah Valley. I mean, we we looked. Uh, you know, we 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 didn't have a realtor, by the way. This this is. Uh, I don't know if it was the first mistake that we made. Certainly some of the realtors that we dealt with uh, were very angry that we didn't have our own realtor. But at the time, we didn't really know what we were looking for. We had a very vague uh, set of requirements and a lot of properties potentially uh, could fill them because we, we intentionally didn't really want to be that picky. Now, over time, we realized that we were. My wife really wanted a an older home. I was sort of on the fence about that, but I'd go along with it. Uh, we really did want something within three hours, if possible, of, of Washington, D.C. We really did want 40 acres. We um, we actually uh, put in an offer on one house, came very close to an offer on, on a, uh, a home near uh, Fort Pickett uh, in Virginia, and it was on 148 acres. It was a, a, the, the couple that lived there. The wife was a master gardener, and she had this beautiful garden that, again, had my wife just, oh, she was squeeing um, about this. But there was a conservation easement on the land. The, uh, the husband actually was trying to restore a lot of the land to quail habitat, which was awesome. Um, but the downside was you couldn't build anything on the property, and we had plans for a barn, additional outbuildings uh, and things like that, and it just couldn't couldn't happen. So we passed. 
Not far away, we found another home for sale. It was actually a newer home built in the 70s, but it, it looked older, and the uh, guy who built it actually was a contractor. Uh, we ended up putting an offer on this place. It was on close to 50 acres, had a pond. Uh, the, the guy built it when his kids were small, so it was just you know, sort of built with, with uh, fun things for kids in mind. But when we put in an offer, we actually found out that uh, the uh, owner of the home had a reverse mortgage for more than what the house was uh, listed for sale at. It was a huge mess, and anyway, the house wasn't for sale. Uh, not at a price that uh, we could pay anyway. So at that point, um, actually, no, even at that point, we didn't get a realtor. There was one more weekend that we uh, we took all the kids, packed them up, and this was the fall of 2012, and we headed off to, I'm not kidding you, Romney, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if Romney wins, this place is going to be, like, happening. You know, it's going to be a, a little weekend getaway place for all the conservatives in D.C. Now, of course, uh, that didn't happen. But we did find some uh, some beautiful homes there uh, in and around Romney, West Virginia. In fact, probably my favorite home that we didn't buy was in Romney uh, or outside of Romney. And it was set back in the, uh, in the hollows. That was one of the things that uh, my wife did not like is that, you know, you're, you're in the mountains at that point. And uh, level land, sunny pastures, those are hard to find. So this place is set way back on a a gravel road. It did have electricity. (laughs) It uh, it had well water. Um, But it was probably a good mile and a half off a gravel road. It was built around an old log cabin. And so you walked into the house through the kitchen, which was now the... uh, uh, that that's where the, the, the main room of the cabin was. It had been converted into a kitchen. It had six-foot ceilings. Now, my wife is 5'10". Uh, I'm a, a couple inches shorter than that. I was uncomfortable. My wife said, no, this this is not going to work. But uh, but the history of the place was amazing. Apparently, it was a, uh, a mustering point for the Union Army in the Civil War. And legend has it, uh, or so the uh, woman of the house told me, that on a payday during the Civil War, uh, there was a, a murder there at the uh, top of the stairs. And at the top of the stairs, now there was a bedroom and a uh, bathroom, a, a beautiful clawfoot tub that overlooked the, uh, the pond. It was, it, was, it was a great house, but it was, uh, it was actually too isolated for my wife, which uh, actually said quite a bit. So after that excursion to West Virginia, my wife and I decided, all right, We've got to get a realtor. And uh, we found a, a, a great gentleman uh, who took the, uh, the list of wants from my wife and found us four properties to look at. And we uh, decided to do it all in one monstrous Saturday session of hundreds of miles of driving. Uh, and it was the third house that day. That we, uh, the look, that we looked at. The first two houses were, were really nothing to speak of. Actually, the first house I kind of liked. It was only about two hours from D.C. It was in, uh, I think, Louisa County. It was a uh, newer home. Had a, uh, we, we had such a small bathroom in our rent house, and we had a toilet and a sink and a, and a shower stall. And this had just like this extraordinary master bathroom suite with a huge, you know, uh, sunken tub for 
two, and it was amazing. Uh, and my wife didn't like it because it was uh, it was too wooded. There wasn't enough uh, sunny pasture, and it was uh, it was too new. <sighs> okay, so second house was uh, was just awful. It was a uh, foreclosure that was in terrible shape. The uh, third house, um, we stopped and, uh, and and had lunch uh, at a little roadside uh, cafe, and the, the realtor said, "I think you're going to like this place. It's older, uh, has a lot of charm." Uh, it's a family that's been living there, but uh, they've been sort of using it as their weekend place. Amazes me that we have people who have farms as weekend places, but whatever. Uh, but they got to get rid of it. So we head out, and um, as we're going down the the, the gravel driveway, uh, my wife, as I said before, just lets out this squee, and she grabs my arm, and she says, "This is the one." And we're actually in our car. The uh, realtor's in his car at the moment. And I said, honey, you got to calm down here. <laughs> it might not be. Because <laughs> we had looked at some great, almost perfect, but not quite the one houses to this point. Uh, anyway, I described the uh, the house in the uh, previous segment, so I won't get into it again. But we, we went ahead and we looked at uh, one more while we're out. You know, you never know. Maybe, maybe the next one's awesome, uh, and it wasn't. It was another foreclosure. It was also in uh, horrible shape. So we um, we ended up putting in a bid on uh, this house, and we moved in uh, at the uh, end of December in 2012. One bit of advice I can give you is that uh, most likely you're not going to be able to use a conventional home mortgage to get your your farm financed, um, we used Farm Credit. This isn't a, a paid sponsorship, but uh, they were fantastic to work with. Uh, but you will need a sort of specialty lender uh, who works in agriculture uh, in order to get the financing for this. Unless, of course, you're lucky enough that you can just you know pay cash and uh, walk away with with a brand new farm. And if so, good on you. Um, that's fantastic. I, Send me an email. I'd, I'd, I'd love to know you. Maybe you could sponsor a segment here on the program. So anyway, that that's how we ended up uh, where we ended up. Again, I, I can't actually argue against doing it the way we did it because, while I'm sure we were aggravating to realtors, and I do apologize uh, for that, we really didn't know any other way. We really did want to go out, and we wanted to walk around these places. We were, we were planning on living there for the rest of our lives. We wanted to see them. Uh, and in the process, I, I had the opportunity to see history uh, in a way that I, I really hadn't before. You know, growing up in Oklahoma, there really aren't a whole lot of old homes, Um and in the northern Virginia suburbs, uh, the ones that are there are all, you know, historic. You, they're, they're Mount Vernon, right? Uh, you go visit on the weekends and you shell out a lot of money in the gift store. Walking around these 19th century and uh, in some cases 18th century farms gave you a totally different, gave me anyway, a, a totally new perspective on history, it was much more personal to think about all of the events unfolding uh, throughout our nation's history 
and it, it, you you weren't you know in the uh, seats of power. You were in somebody's living room, and it uh, I don't know it was really easy to imagine the uh, the folks who would have lived there sitting with their newspapers or gathered around the radio or or, or the day that the first television uh, came into the house or the day that electricity came into the house, for that matter. And this being Virginia, you also can't help but imagine the, the day that the news of Cornwallis' surrender at Yorktown had happened or that uh, Lee had surrendered at Appomattox or that slavery was over. There's, um, again, there's a ton of history in the state of Virginia. And getting to explore these homes brought me closer uh, to this state than I would have thought possible when I moved here in 2004. I was a a proud Oklahoman. And now I suppose I can uh, perhaps claim dual citizenship because... um, I am a Virginian as well, and I, I think I, I, I know that I would not have been able to say that had I stayed in northern Virginia. All right, again, we're coming up on a uh, break time here on 40 Acres in a Fool. When we come back, we're going to talk bacon. So stick around. There's more 40 Acres in a Fool coming up next. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks so much for being a part of the very first 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. And for this segment, we've actually moved to the 40 Acres uh, in an experiment to see how well it works here. Is it possible to do a podcast in a house full of kids and dogs? My thoughts, no. You can probably hear uh, my dog Bullet's toenails click, click, clicking on the floor underneath our table here. I'm also joined by my wife. If if this show wasn't called 40 Acres and a Fool, it would probably be called Dork Dynasty, just because I, I, I that was my second choice. And I have my Miss K. You know, Phil has uh, his beloved Miss K. Well, I have Miss E. And I'm very pleased that uh, my wife can join us on the uh, program for a segment as we talk pigs and pork and all things bacon. Hi, honey. Hello, Cameron. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Well, listen, if we're going to talk about raising pigs, this was certainly a mutual decision for us. I mean, this wasn't this was not something. Here's a helpful tip: uh, if you are part of a committed couple, you must both commit to raising livestock. I think if one of us decided we wanted to do this and the other one said no, that would have been very problematic. It would have been very problematic. However, one of us sort of jumped in head first. <laughs> well, I think we were both excited about. Uh, raising pigs from the the get-go i mean uh it wasn't long after we moved here that that we had to start four little hogs that's correct yeah we moved in at the very end of december you remember like 28th we had to put up half a christmas tree and throw christmas away on christmas day so we could finish packing for the movers to get here right by mid-february we had the first four hogs And because we had friends who were interested in the woman that we got the four from still had 
more, we ended up getting two more. But when we signed the papers, when we became owners, the that thing I the the last thing I did before I went to bed that night was I put in the order for our chickens. Right, that was the first February. Yeah, that was the first thing was the chickens, and we decided once we got here we would start looking because one of the things that we were doing is we were also looking. We didn't know a what what kind of breeds were around and and b what kind of breeds we wanted. Um, I remember very early on you were really concerned about the size of the hog that we were getting. You really did not want a monster hog or three or four roaming around trying to take care of that first thing. No, I didn't want something that I didn't think I could safely handle because I had read that some of them could be up to eight, 900 pounds. Right. And didn't, wasn't there a story right around the time that we got our hogs of a poor, unfortunate farmer in Oregon who uh, ended up being eaten by his hogs. Wasn't that right around the time we got our pigs for the first time? I think it was, and that was one of those ginormous <laughs> breeds that gets huge, and then when we eventually decided what we wanted, because we both discussed that we wanted heritage. Right. But heritage could be an 800-pound Tamworth or a 200-pound American guinea hog, and you and I both were like, Let's go with the American guinea hog. <laughs> and I'm glad that we did. Honestly, I have to say that I'm glad that we did. So we looked all over. And American guinea hogs are, are lard hogs. They're, they're, they're made for fat. And when we talk about heritage hogs, these are, these are the hogs that your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents uh, used to eat. And depending on what part of the country you live in, your great-grandparents were either eating American guinea hogs, if they lived in the South, that was one of the really common hogs, or a, a large black hog, or an Ossabaw, uh, or uh, what are some of the others? The Durick, right? That's a, another big uh, heritage breed. Yes, the Durick, the Berkshire, the Tamworth. But those are the ones that you do start getting into the big. The big size, right. So we knew that we wanted to get something that was a, uh, a heritage breed. As a matter of fact, there are only about 3,000 American guinea hogs uh, left in the United States. Now that we've had them, though, I have to come up with the, the, there are many people who register their American guinea hogs, and I think it's the registered ones that the numbers are coming up. There are many people who have variations of an American guinea hog, Mm -hmm. like we do, Mm -hmm. that aren't papered. Yeah, I'm not really sure about the idea of of papering something that you're just going to be eating anyway, but uh, there aren't that many. I mean, these are not hogs that are grown for food uh, anymore, primarily because, again, they're they're lard hogs. They're very, very fatty, right? They are. I've been, the more I read up on them, the more the people in these groups are butchering them at a younger age. So they're not getting very big at all, maybe 100 pounds, but then they're also not as fatty. But I have to say... Bannister went to... Bannister was one of our pigs, by the way. We named our food. And he was Bannister named Tarleton. And he, yeah, bad guy. Bad guys or just food, right? Or, or fat presidents, but yeah, never mind. <laughs> we had first ladies, too. <laughs> we did. <laughs> if you're going to eat, if you're going to raise the food you eat, have fun with the, uh, the food that you eat. I mean, it's my attitude, and I think it's your attitude as well, not to go too far afield here, but... To, to treat the animals that are in our care with respect, to treat them with uh, a care and concern, to make sure that while they're here on this earth, they have the best life possible. And I feel pretty confident in saying that our hogs are living 
some of the best hog lives on the planet. They have more space to run around. They have fresh pasture to eat. They have a wonderful, warm, fluffy bed. Uh, and I think uh, our hogs, again, uh, compared to the, the, the average uh, piece of pork that you're eating in the refrigerator, our hogs are living large. And happy hogs make tasty bacon. Amen to that. So the other thing about, I think, eating bacon off of a lard hog, I have to say, we were talking about this this weekend, so let's flash forward. So we had our first season of six hogs, and they uh, they were incredible. Uh, they tasted delicious. And then a few weeks ago, um, the wonderful Miss E here was asked by a friend to uh, help butcher a hog for the first time. This was not... A little American guinea hog, though. No, this was a hog that was five years old and between eight and nine hundred pounds. And in the picture of it hanging up next to me, it was probably as long as I am tall and I'm 5'10". Okay. By the way, you're a badass for uh, butchering a hog. I just want you to know that and I want that on the record. Um so we, uh, we we cured the bacon, and I'm going to share with you, uh, Miss E is going to share with you her uh, her curing recipe here so you can make bacon on your own. Um, and over the uh, the past weekend, we actually put some in the smoker after it had cured for a few weeks, tasted it. I got to say, it was better than anything that I'd found in the store, but it was not, it was not our bacon. No, and I don't know whether it was a matter of it being five years old or it's just a completely different hog, but the fat has a whole different mouth feel. It's not that unctuous creaminess that you get from the American guinea hog. It's a good fat, and I'll eat the bacon. I'm going to finish smoking it, right. but it doesn't feel or taste the same. No, I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say it's an 8, but yes. the American guinea hog bacon's a 12. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, is that, you know, when when Miss E talks about the, that that unctuous fat, with the American guinea hog, because it's a lard hog and there's there's they're a very fatty hog, you're going to be uh, scraping away, you know, 35, 40 pounds of, of lard that you can use. Um, and in the olden days, that was very, very useful. That was very, very handy. But they're smaller hogs. They don't have those long bellies uh, like like some of the other uh, meat hogs do. So as a result, the, the fat is just this incredible... It's almost this buttery consistency, and then the the meat is this amazing smoky. And we always cut it very thick, so it's almost like a little ham steak in your mouth, and it's just this smoky, delicious wonderfulness. That it, I was thinking about it today, and honestly, I think that American guinea hog bacon is probably the closest thing to a a pork version of Kobe beef that you could find. I can see that association because that's all about the fat and the beef. And so with the American guinea hog, right, you have that that incredible marbling and it's that that fatty flavor. But it's also, you know, there just aren't a lot of Kobe beef cows and there aren't a lot of American guinea hogs. So I would say whether you register them or not, uh, if you're looking for the most delicious bacon in the world, even if you're not raising your own hogs, look for, if you can, try to find that pork belly uh, from an American guinea hog. All right, so now I'm going to rely on your expertise here because it is possible, even if you aren't raising your own hogs, you can acquire pork belly, right? Yes, most grocery stores carry it. I know they have it at the 
the local grocery store, and sometimes if you just ask the butcher, he can even order it for you. Okay, so help us out here. We have this belly, and it's kind of wobbly and flobbly and squishy and everything. How does that turn into delicious, delicious bacon? Well, I found a recipe in a very good cookbook called DIY Cookbook. It's from America's Test Kitchen. Um, And I changed up a couple of the ingredients, and of course I had to make it big enough for a whole hog. Mm -hmm. And I tweaked a couple of the proportions, but this is what I use. Okay. I use one cup of dark brown sugar. And this is for the the, the rub. This is what you're going to put on the bacon. This is going to be the rub. On the belly. It's a dry rub that we... It's a dry rub that we coat the entire pork belly with, and then we'll stick it in a plastic bag, ziplock it closed, and let it sit for at least two weeks. Because with American guinea hog bellies, they're really rather fatty. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to start with at least ten days if you have something thinner. Can you can you cure it for too long? Can you leave it Actually, for too long? I haven't come across that yet, because it it's 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 osmosis. It's it's the salt trans is tr- is working with the cells of the meat mm-hmm. to transfer water in and out to get mm-hmm. the flavors in and out, and it can only get so saturated. Okay, so it's not going to get, but so it, yeah, it will get to a stopping point, but it's not going to go over. No, it gets to a point. It's fine, and then. It gets to a certain firmness. That's how you can tell? Yes. It's a firmness, and the meat is nice and red. It's a dark red. Almost a purple. Yes. It's almost like it, it's cooked already. Mm-hmm. Like corned beef. Okay. That but color. it's But it's not. So but don't eat not. it yet. Don't eat it yet. Okay. All right. So, sorry. Back to the back to the ingredients here for the rub. The rub is... And now this is going to give you a one four-pound pork belly piece. Okay. This is... I'm scaling the recipe down. So you're going to combine one cup of dark brown sugar, one half cup kosher salt, one tablespoon of black peppercorns, and you're going to crack them. You're not going to grind them. You want big chunks. Two teaspoons of dry thyme, three quarters of a teaspoon of pink salt, and I'll come back to that, one or two depending upon the size, crumpled, like really crunched them up bay leaves. The pork belly without skin. Okay. So you got to take the skin off if it comes with skin on. And if you're getting it from the grocery store, it probably will not. Exactly. If you're getting it from the grocery store, you can bypass this. I did do one once and it was (laughs) the weirdest thing ever because a friend gave me just the belly Mm -hmm. and didn't have time to take the skin off because I said, no, please take it off. I had to pull off... The skin nipples and all. So that was a little bit... It was good tasting, but it was a little weird to do. Anyway, so you combine all these dry... Make sure you get your belly nipple free. Yeah, Just ask it. the butcher. I'd like mine with my, my nipples, please. Thank nipples, you. please. It's weird. Okay, so you combine all the dry ingredients in a nice big bowl. And you take your belly, and you're probably not going to want to use a big four-pound piece. You might want to portion it into smaller slabs or pieces that you can put in a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. And you're going to just coat it. You're going to mix it all, all the dry ingredients up. You're going to make sure it's really good and well done. You're going to put that belly in there, and you are just going to smush and rub and massage that dry rub all up in that. And you're going to put it in a Ziploc bag and seal it up, push out some air, and you're going to let it sit. 
And every one or two days, you're going to go in there, you're going to turn it over, you're going to rub it, you're going to give it some love, and you're going to leave it alone. Okay, until it gets that, that, that firm, firm consistency. firm, because it's going to be floppy. Right. But you can tell, if you've been working it every two days, you're going to feel the the texture change, the firmness, mm-hmm. and you're going to see that color get to that nice, like I said, it's like a corned beef red. Okay. So we've gotten to the point where our bacon is now that nice firm consistency. We're ready. We're ready to, to take it from this, uh, this, this cured pork belly to honest to goodness, put it in your mouth and just taste the goodness bacon. That means we have to smoke it. Yes, but first, yes. we have to do a very important step. And a lot of people don't. Do that's this, missing right? from this cookbook recipe, and that's why this is kind of my mishmash of a couple of different methods. Okay. So, this part I've learned from Alton Brown. Aha. Uh-huh. Mr. Good Eats himself. Okay. He d- rinses the bellies off and dries them, but not only just dries them, he puts them on racks. And puts a fan across them so they actually dry. It creates a film called pellicle. It's like a sticky, dry film on mm-hmm. the bacon, and it's almost like a smoke grabber. Okay. And so it kind of seals in that smoke and. Well, it sort of attracts the smoke to the meat and mm. holds it there. Okay, and so when you take that step, you're going to get a smokier, richer, yes. more flavorful bacon. Yes, you are. Okay. And that step to drying with the fan across takes about an hour to two hours. Okay. Now, you put it in the smoker. I set up, we have an electric smoker. Right. Um, Thank we've, you, Tractor Supply, for putting it on sale, by the way. It was on clearance, even better. I know, right? We've used hickory, we've used apple, we've used pecan, and recently we've used cherry. You soak the chips for about 30 minutes before you start up the smoker, heat up the smoker, get it hot, put the chips in for about 20 minutes, let them burn off that first initial because you don't want that acrid, Mm -hmm. and then you layer them in, close the door. Layer the bacon in. Layer the bacon on the shelves, put the slabs out, fat side up. You want the fat to render down through the meat. Okay. Check it about an hour, but you want to leave the temperature medium low. You want to leave it really down to about... 150, 175. You only want it to get to about 150 degrees. So you want to kind of cold, warm smoke it. And that'll take about an hour, an hour and a half, totally. If you're talking about a four-pound slab, right? About a big slab. If they're smaller, check it in about 45 minutes. It might be a total of an hour, an hour and a half smoking time. Okay. All right. Now, the great news is once it's it's ready to come out of the smoker... You can eat it. It's ready to eat. You oh don't have to fry God, it. No, you don't have you to do can, anything to you it. Can, you can take it out of the smoker. You can put it on your... Now, they say cool it, and then slice it, but you don't have to do that. You can just put it, and you can just start slicing it off, because really, you're shaping it up to make it into a nice slab of bacon sure, anyway. Sure, right. And you're eating it, and I can't even describe... Like I said, that, that yummy, creamy, melt-in-your-mouth, unctuous fat feeling, and... And it's addictive. Like everybody in the family, when they know that I'm smoking bacon, they're in the kitchen and it's like moss to the flame and everybody wants their, can I have a little piece? Oh, can I have another piece? Oh, can I have that mom? It's good stuff. And you know, when we make bacon in the afternoon that we're having breakfast for dinner that night. That's what happened on Saturday. Right. Scrambled eggs from our hens 
and home cured smoked bacon. It's not a bad, uh, not a bad dinner, is it, darling? No, not a bad dinner. Next best dinner would be the uh, sausage gravy and homemade biscuits. Oh yeah, maybe we can get that recipe next time you uh, join us. I can do that. All right. Sausage and how to make sausage gravy. Well, listen, Miss E, thank you very much, darling, for uh, being a part of this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. Wouldn't be here without you, you know. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to step away for just a moment or two. Uh, We've got more of 40 Acres and a Fool coming back after this, so stick around. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards still with you. And for this last segment, we have to talk a little bit about political correctness. Now, I know I said we were going to talk about uh, an old book that I've been reading, and we are, actually. Uh, it's, it's not actually that old. It came out in 1991. It's called The Honey and the Hemlock, uh, and of course, the... Uh, Inevitable subtitle, Democracy and Paranoia in Ancient Athens and Modern America. Eli Sagan uh, is the author at the time. He was a professor at the New School in New York. This was, of course, during the George H.W. Bush administration. So he was writing a lot about the the paranoid tendency in American politics, particularly uh, conservative American politics, and how this can threaten democracy as it did in ancient Athens. You know, we think of uh, Athens as just a, a, a democratic society, but it had periods in its history of tyranny. There was a sort of seesaw back and forth. I'm not even sure, honestly, that this book could be written anymore. That's one of the things I love uh, about reading older books is that sometimes you find that uh, the left doesn't believe what the left used to believe anymore. And this book, written in 1991 by uh, Eli Sagan, I don't even know that the left would embrace it these days, particularly the the, uh, the hard left. After all, I mean, this book is talking about ancient Athens, so there's a lot of quotes from Aristotle and Socrates. There's a lot of Greek history. Right now at Berkeley, we actually have students uh, who are seeking to occupy the syllabus. Uh, Rodrigo Kazu and Meg Parrott had a piece at the uh, Daily Californian not long ago in which they said that they were calling for an occupation of syllabi in the social sciences and humanities. And they said it was a, uh, a call to action instigated by our experience last semester as students in an upper division course on classical social theory. Now keep in mind, this is classical social theory. Grades were based primarily on multiple choice quizzes on assigned readings. The course syllabus employed a standardized canon of theory that began with Plato and Aristotle, then jumped to modern philosophers Hobbes, Locke, Hegel, Marx, Weber, Foucault, all of whom are white men. This syllabus did not include a single woman or a person of color. Again, keep in mind, we're talking about classical social theory. You you could, uh, if you were a student, you could Note in uh, all of your essays how unfair and perhaps uh, patriarchal uh, it was that for most of human society, women were largely excluded from the intellectual uh, realm. And, and that, that, that would certainly be an interesting point. Um, but what you can't do is say that we need to discard 1,800 years worth of 
philosophy and history because you, the student, happen to think that uh, all of the past has been flawed. Maybe we start, I don't know, in, in, in uh, 1930. Uh, maybe we start in uh, 1968. I don't know when our uh, new progressive history begins. Perhaps uh, Inauguration Day of 2009. That can be the new uh, year one uh, in our uh, new progressive calendar. Either way, this book by Eli Sagan, probably not uh, warmly received if it were published today, at least by the Occupy the Syllabus crowd. And as I said, this was a book written by a guy uh, certainly on the left. I don't agree with uh, everything that he said, but there is some interesting history. I've always found that when reading old books, and I love to read particularly older books, uh, I found that I can usually get something out of them, whether they were written from the left or from the right. Just from a historical perspective, there's usually a lesson learned, and a lot of times it's uh, reading what the authors got wrong, and we can see this now in, in hindsight. Anyway, I digress. Back to uh, the book The Honey and the Hemlock and political correctness for a second. There's a quote in this uh, book by Aristotle, and he's talking about uh, how to maintain and preserve the, uh, the, the, the country that we have, or in this case, the, uh, the city-state. And he wrote, The greatest, however, of all the means we've mentioned for ensuring the stability of constitutions is the education of citizens in the spirit of their constitution. There is no profit in the best of laws, even when they are sanctioned by general civil consent, if the citizens themselves have not been attuned by the force of habit and the influence of teaching to the right constitutional temper. The problem that, that we have now, and I, I don't think it's a problem that Aristotle really uh, thought much about, is that we, we do have universal education. He was a big believer in uh, universal education. Uh, he said the system of education must also be one and the same for all. It cannot be left as it is at present to private enterprise, with each parent making private provision for his children. All right, so now we have universal education. The problem is we still don't have that civic knowledge. In fact, we're losing it at a uh, seemingly increasing rate here. So we're not attuned by force of habit. We're certainly not attuned by uh, the influence of teaching to what I would consider to be the right uh, or, or, or original constitutional temper. And in fact, uh, now we are more subjected to temper tantrums about our constitution. Jonathan Chait had a uh, pretty interesting piece at New York Magazine recently. Not a very PC thing to say. Now, again, here, here's another guy on the left uh, who's actually acknowledging and uh, criticizing the, the rise of, of political correctness, the, the resurgence of political correctness. And I'm not even sure that I'd call it political correctness because it's not. Political correctness sounds sort of innocuous, right? Like you, you want to be politically correct. This is about suppression of speech. This is about suppression of ideas. This is about scolding people into silence. In this piece, Jonathan Chait quoted uh, progressive writer Freddie DeBear. He said, It seems to me now that the public face of social liberalism has ceased to seem positive, joyful, human, and freeing. There are so many ways to step on a landmine now, so many terms that have become forbidden, so many attitudes that will get you cast out if you even appear to hold them. I'm far from alone in feeling that it's typically not worth it to engage, given the risks. Michelle Goldberg uh, from The Nation, Jonathan Chait says, wrote recently about people who, quote, feel emotionally savaged by their involvement in online feminism, not because of sexist trolls, 
but because of the slashing righteousness of other feminists. A uh, former editor of Feministing, Samita Mukhpatai, and I apologize, Samita, if I got your last name wrong. Uh, anyway, she told Michelle Goldberg, quote, everyone is so scared to speak right now. Jonathan Chait says, this new political correctness has bludgeoned uh, even many of its own supporters into despondent silence, and that's a triumph for it, but of limited use. He says, politics in a democracy is still based on getting people to agree with you, not making them afraid to disagree. The historical record of political movements that sought to expand freedom for the oppressed by eliminating it for their enemies is dismal. The historical record of American liberalism, which has extended social freedoms to blacks, Jews, gays, and women, is glorious. And that glory, he writes, rests in its confidence in the ultimate power of reason, not coercion, to triumph. Well, I think Jonathan Chait uh, sees this phenomenon as something that is going to burn itself out. I myself am not quite as optimistic. I I, I do believe that uh, these scolds are uh, not anywhere close to a, a numerical majority in our country. But I don't think that they necessarily need to be. Uh, after all, you look at what they have done on the left and you see the number of people that have been cowed into silence. And that's really what they need. They need uh, a lack of opposition. They need a lack of people standing up and saying no. Do you remember that story from Oberlin College not long ago? It was over the uh, winter break, or I guess right before the winter break, a student uh, emailing her professor and asking for midterms to be delayed because everybody was so upset. Not her necessarily, mind you, but, but, but people that she knew were upset because of the grand jury decisions in Missouri and on Staten Island, and couldn't he just have it in his heart to understand what everybody was going through and push these midterm exams, which are ultimately really unimportant, back just a little bit? And his one-word answer was beautiful. All he said was no. No elaboration, no uh, a, a deep reasoning as to why he came to that conclusion, just no. That professor refused to play the game, and he walked away a winner. We need to see more of this, I think, in our society. Now, it is fine to push back, I think. I, I also think it's good to, uh, to challenge uh, folks on their, their thinking. For instance, um, you know, I like bacon, right? We've talked about this. I like meat. I'm a meat eater. And occasionally uh, I get attacked by animal rights activists, either because of the fact that I'm, I'm raising my own food or uh, more often because I'm supporting hunters and uh, sportsmen. And the animal rights activists really despise this. But I have to say the people that I've talked to who are animal rights activists, I, I find their positions pretty inconsistent. I think for them, ultimately, again, the ones that I've talked to, it's uh, less about uh, supporting animals and more about hating humanity. That's just always what it seems to come back down to. Uh, for instance, there was a story not long ago in uh, northern Virginia, uh, not far from where we used to live, Fairfax City. And what Fairfax City is doing to uh, try to reduce the deer population. And I have not heard any complaints from any animal rights activists about this. Uh, the same people who complain about hunting and, and, and killing that deer apparently have no problem with drugging, abducting, and performing a surgery without consent on 
female deers, removing their ovaries so that they can't reproduce, denying them uh, their natural right of motherhood, changing uh, who these deer are and, and making them uh, sterile creatures and then releasing them back into the environment. I've not heard any animal rights activists complain about that. In fact, this is considered humane. But if animals are people, as one animal rights activist told me recently, surely you would not condone uh uh, tranquilizing, abducting, and uh, performing uh, uh, non-consensual surgery to remove a human's ovaries because, well, we just think that there are uh, way too many of them in this in this city. We've got to reduce the population density. At that point, you've probably returned to the bad old days of the uh, 1920s when the capital P progressives, many of them were in favor of eugenics. But see, if you don't think that animals are people, if you think that animals are animals and that we as humans have a responsibility to properly manage uh, these animals, then all of a sudden this procedure doesn't sound uh, quite so horrific, right? But either does hunting. Because outside of Fairfax City and Fairfax County, there's no way that you could uh, engage in uh, ovary removal of, of all of the does that you need to. There are somewhere between four and 5,000 deer car collisions in Fairfax County every year. Uh, in Fairfax County, as well as throughout much of the United States, hunting is actually needed to keep these populations in check. It's not because we hate the deer. It's not because we uh, want to be cruel to animals. It's because we actually want these animals to have a full rich life. And we want the, the population, we want the herd to be as healthy and sustainable as possible. But it's up to us to do it because we're human beings and they're not. Is that a politically incorrect thing to say these days? Probably so. Well, let it be. All right, listen, we have uh, got to wrap up this first edition of 40 Acres in a Fool. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear from you, uh, thoughts, uh, uh, compliments, complaints. And I'd actually like to hear, if you don't mind, a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? What do you like to do? Uh, how'd you find out about the show? What would you like to hear more of? Do you like to farm? Do you like to cook? Do you like to shoot? Do you like to, what, what do you like to do? The email address is 40acrefool, that's 40acrefool, at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Cam Edwards. You can find me on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Cam Edwards 2A. And, of course, don't forget to watch us on NRA News, Cam and Company, weekdays 2 to 5 Eastern on nranews.com, at 5 p.m. Eastern on Sportsman Channel each and every day. Until we meet again, remember that old farm saying, good judgment comes from experience. And most of that comes from bad judgment. So live a little, learn a lot. Be safe, have fun. We'll talk to you here soon on 40 Acres and a Fool. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.